0: You're listening to Cloudies with a Chance of Scripture. Today, the flood waters have descended. They have come to the end, and now we are seeing uh, a, a kind of a recapitulation of Eden getting ready to take place. So it's not Eden, right? In fact, it's it's far from Eden. Uh, But in the same way that in the beginning, God hovered over the face of the waters, and there was just water, and God brought order out of the water and creation out of chaos, out of the chaotic waters. So God has sent chaotic waters to undo um, everything that's been created, and uh, uh all all life except that which has been spared by him on this boat. And you can see that it's it's him that who has spared it because the Bible even talks about how God's the one who shuts the door of the ark. So it's not even, it's not even Noah who does that. God's the one protecting it. This was his plan, uh, his protection. He closes it, He takes care of it. And uh, in the end, it uh, finally comes to settle. So, of course, you know, many of you know the the flood story well, all the details of sending out birds to check on things. You can always reread those chapters, 7 through 8, to kind of catch back up on those. But we're going to talk about when the flood comes to its end and Noah's now getting out of the boat. So, let's go ahead and start in uh, chapter 8, verse 20. And we're just going to read a little bit and pause here and there to point out some things that maybe you didn't uh, know or recognize because uh, it's not necessarily straightforward. You got to do some more research to see these things. So then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All right, I want to stop right there first and talk about how the Lord is smelling this pleasing aroma. Okay, so in ancient times, you have people sacrificing Uh, to all these different kinds of gods, right? We know that. You see it all throughout the Bible. You've got these temples to other gods, these false gods. You've got people sacrificing to these gods and and all this kind of stuff. Now, the false gods, why are they getting sacrificed to what was the point here? Uh, When you start to read it, you actually see, like, the idea that, like, people, humans— are serving the gods by feeding them, by giving them food, because these gods need to eat. And apparently it's these humans, when they take the food into these sacred temples and offer them up on their altars, they're feeding the gods. Therefore, in other flood stories of ancient times where um, the gods uh, send this flood and wipe things out for whatever reason that they might do it in these other stories— they actually come to the conclusion. Some of these gods are like, "Oh, what have we done? We just wiped everything out. Now we're starving. We <laughs> no one's no one's feeding us." So, for example, um, in the Gilgamesh epic, there you have a story about uh, this great flood that that comes, and uh, the gods are starving at the end of it because no one's been there to sacrifice to them. And according to the Gilgamesh epics. When the gods smelled the sweet savor, uh, they crowded like flies around the sacrificer. So you just see them like devouring the food. But Yahweh never gets pictured that way. This is one of the ways in which you can tell like uh, God's people have come to understand Yahweh in a different light. They don't see him like the false gods. They know that God, Yahweh, is a creator. He's created all things in the spiritual realm in the physical realm. All spiritual beings are his, all physical beings are his, all physical creation, spiritual creation. It's all attributed to him. And so this idea that you could feed Yahweh? No, by no means does that make any sense. The false gods might be starving and and need food, and people may have come to that conclusion in other religions, but Yahweh... By no means does he need anything from from humanity. And so uh, in the Gilgamesh epic, you know, you've got this sacrifice, the gods smell it, and then they start crowding around, devouring it. But in Noah's story, you simply have a sacrifice and the Lord smells this pleasing aroma, which is something that will come up in other passages down the road. And I know, like, younger Jamin, when he was reading his Bible, was like, man, I guess God just really likes the smells of burnt animals. I, <laughs> you know, like, I, and even as a young child trying to process that, like, so is he upset that we don't sacrifice anymore? Because he seems to really like the smell. That, of course, isn't uh, um, what's going on here. You know, it's kind of like God's reaction to uh, a pleasing sacrifice. He enjoys the aroma, the heart, the intentions behind it, things like that. But he's not being fed by it. He's not hungry for food or anything like that. There's nothing humanity can give God. So, unlike the other gods, when Yahweh receives a sacrifice, it's like a pleasing sacrifice. And as the New Testament tells us, you know, our lives are sacrifices now. We're living sacrifices So now we are that pleasing aroma, if you will. Okay. So, uh, God, uh, with the flood and let's pick up, uh, halfway through verse 21, where we left off, uh, God smells that aroma and he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I think that's, uh, just an important statement to to hone in on right there. We we just talked about, you know, this isn't Eden. Humanity has the knowledge of good and evil. It's a recapitulation of Eden. In other words, the world's been wiped out. We're starting from scratch. We have a small amount of humans that we're we're starting with. Evil's been flooded, baptized, done away with. But all that being said, it is not Eden. Because we are not in the same place. We have the knowledge of good and evil. The earth is cursed in certain senses because of what we did when we fell from the garden. Uh, There's plenty that has happened that this cannot, you know, be the exact uh, Eden story all over again. It's starting from scratch, but it's not what it could have been had we never eaten from the knowledge of the, from the... Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so with that being said, God now realizes, like, you know, maybe originally in the real Eden, our hearts weren't evil, but now by the time we enter into our youth, our hearts very easily get taken over and become evil and gravitate towards evil. That's part of the reason God had to flood the whole earth, is because everything just got so evil to the point that he regretted making mankind. So God now is recognizing that in redoing this, he has to kind of come to the table with uh, certain concessions. And I know that sounds weird, you know, like, Jamin, how could God, like, make any concession? He can have whatever he wants. And he, he can, it's true, but it seems that he works with humanity on levels in which he sometimes doesn't get what he wants or he goes with a lesser plan than what he would like to go with. So like a good example later, Moses is going to be told, hey, look, Moses, I want you to um, go talk to Pharaoh, lead my people, so on and so forth. And Moses is going to be like, "Eh, I don't like talking. I'm not a smooth talker. I don't want to do that. God's like, no, I want you to do this. And Moses is like, yeah, but I don't really want to. But then you see, like, God like comes up with a different plan, not a plan necessarily that he wanted, but nonetheless, he comes up with this plan to let Moses's brother, Aaron, take on a certain role that Moses himself was supposed to do. So God kind of makes a concession. It wasn't his plan, and he would have had it a different way. But because Moses is so Fearful of this, God goes ahead and works with him rather than just like, well, forget you, Moses, I'll go find someone else. That's what seems to happen in that story. In the same way, right here, God kind of makes a certain concession. He realizes like, you know what? Man's heart, it's evil from its youth. I now have to deal with this. But I'm not going to reach the same conclusion that I did this time. I'm never going to flood the earth again. Uh, In this case, he says, uh, you know, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, does God not want evil on the earth? Sure, by all means. He didn't make the world to be evil, even if it was given free will to fall that way, and certainly has fallen that way and in, in all regards possible at some point throughout history. But um, rather than just say, like, but I'm done with it, I'm just wiping it out, and because it's just evil, God actually says, I'm going to work with what I have here, and part of that is recognizing that ever since people, ever since all humans are are young, they they deal with uh, uh, evil. <laughs> the The intentions of their heart become evil ever since their youth. And you know, he doesn't say like babies are born evil, necessarily. We don't see that here, even if we might argue that we're born into sin we see instead, like, ever since human beings are very, very young and they're in their youth, man, they just get caught up in evil. Uh, but despite that, God is not going to wipe the world out again. And there's uh, some another interesting way in which we see him make a concession as well. So when we continue into chapter 9, and this is where we really start to see kind of the recapitulation of Eden, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we've heard that before, right? That's exactly what was said to uh, Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So God is saying, you know, New Eden right here. We're on the boat has landed on this mountain, um, which uh, even though Eden didn't seem to be in a mountain in Genesis when we read it, Elsewhere, we do see Eden to be recorded as like a mountainous place. Like if you were to go to Ezekiel 28, you'll see in Ezekiel 28, 13, uh, God is talking, I think, about Satan. And he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. But if you fast forward to uh, uh, the next verse, you see, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. So, like, you've got the Garden of God, the Holy Mountain of God, it seemed to be the same place. Uh, And that goes back to ancient Near Eastern uh, thinking. So, God, or even the little G gods, if you will, you naturally thought of them as being in, like, the highest places on the earth because that was kind of where heaven and earth intersected, you know? It was really high up there. So, if uh, the stars in ancient thinking were spiritual beings then that's because they're up there in the heavens. Therefore, if there were any spiritual beings on the earth, you would think that they would be up on a mountain somewhere, because uh, that would be as high as you could get. Likewise, they also thought, you know, the gods had everything they needed. So you wouldn't just think like a, a kind of like deserted mountain landscape, but you would think like a garden at the top of the mountain. And you you see that in uh, other cultures even today of these holy places, uh, being up mountains in gardens, right? So that being said, why, why did I even get into that? <laughs> uh, let's see here. Let's see. I brought that up because, oh, right. Yeah. The recapitulation of, of Eden. Here's Moses on a mountain and he's being told the same things that he heard Uh, That Adam and Eve heard in Eden, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. The plan is back on. They are to eventually subdue the entire planet and fill it with the image of God, because that's what human beings are. They're imagers of God. They're the kings and queens of this planet. They reign over everything there. They work with the animals to take care of things, to take care of the earth. So uh, that's what uh, you see here. Eden's being restarted. Uh, but here's here's where things change, because this is another concession. This is not going to sound like Eden anymore. One of the rules has drastically changed. He, he says this, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So let's pause there really quick. This is not what happened in Eden. Okay, So in Eden, believe it or not, we were vegans. I know it's crazy. I would have died. (laughs) Uh, But uh, if we were to go back to Genesis, what God told Adam and Eve, he said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. We don't have anything about you eat the animals, right? That's not even there. As far as we can tell, we are to be at peace with these animals and And kind of, you know, rule over them, not in aggressive ways, but in like, you know, think of like your dog or your cat. These are the pleasant ways in which we might imagine a a heavenly vision of living with animals, taking care of them, working together to take care of the earth. So, yeah, the Bible actually has like a, a very good image of of. Animals, you know. So when you hear people start talking about taking care of the animals, and if that makes you roll your eyes a little bit, you're actually kind of missing a little bit of the Edenic vision here. Like the idea of living with a pet in your house, uh, even though I'm not always good at that because they always take up all my space. But uh, that right there, that's that's an Edenic vision of us living in harmony with the animals. And uh, as far as eating goes, we weren't eating them. That was not going on. <laughs> uh, and uh, likewise, we don't see the animals eating each other. I know it sounds weird because you think, you know, you think like overpopulation control here, like they just be taking over if they're not eating each other. But the animals are pictured at peace and harmony as well. You know, like the vision that we have in this new creation of the lion laying down with the lamb, that feels kind of like a callback of what we might envision Eden to have been. Because here we have uh, to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. So humans get plants with seeds in it, so like fruit and things like that. But then uh, um, here with uh, the animals, they're to eat the grass. They're to eat all of the all of the vegetation that they can come across. So people are not eating meat at this point. That seems to be a part of the envisionment of what God created when he created the world. But humanity has become so evil that you have to wonder here in this new Eden like huh, they've had a taste of steak now. can they ever go back? you know it's like because here God changes the rules. the new Eden's being established, be fruitful, multiply, but then the change all of a sudden, look, you can eat animals now. So let's revisit nine one more time. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I gave you the green plants I give you everything but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood so again here we just have uh everything is open to to be eaten at this point uh seems perhaps that was something that maybe came with how fallen the world was during the flood and something that uh, God has now conceded that the rules have changed uh, because of humanity's inability to to stick with what they were supposed to stick with in the beginning. You also have, uh, as we already read, that now animals are afraid of humans. You know, I don't know if that's just like a poetic telling of why animals are afraid of humans, because now we eat them or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I will say this. Uh, all these animals were just on this floating zoo. Like, they came to the Ark, they got inside of the Ark. So it, it seems to, like, some extent, like, even just a few moments ago, animals weren't afraid of humans. Uh, and now things have kind of drastically changed, if not from a poetic standpoint, than from, like, a some kind of moral standpoint as we enter into this New world, and they should be afraid of us, really. I mean, because in the same breath of they're afraid of you, God has also said you can eat them now. All right, so uh, moving on, we had that verse at the end there, right? Uh, what you shall not, uh, you shall not eat flesh with its life—that is, its blood—and for your life blood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So like lifeblood, whether it's in an animal or in a human, uh, if a animal hurts uh, and kills a human, God's like, I hold that animal responsible. In fact, you're going to see that written into the law later. If we were to take a look at Exodus 21, 28 says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. And its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So what you have right there is this idea like, look, animals are held accountable. If they gore human beings, well, then they will be held accountable to that. But likewise, when human beings gore human beings, kill other humans, the lifeblood that you've taken will require a reckoning there too. In fact, it gets very serious. In verse 6, God says this Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, I don't know if that's just like God seriously communicating look, you don't kill each other, you don't take each other's lives. That kind of evil has been wiped away with the flood. I don't want to see it anymore maybe God needs to communicate that even more clearly because we just saw so much lifeblood taken, right? I mean, the whole earth here is flooded. Everything's died except for a handful of people and as many animals as you can fit onto, onto that ark. So there's been so much death. Maybe God needs to like (laughs) reiterate, I know what you've seen. I know the kind of evil you were seeing before I pulled you, and I know you just saw a lot more death after I brought you into the boat, but you do not kill each other. Why? For God made man in his own image. Now, that word image, if I'm understanding right, that word image is like the same kind of word we use when we say that someone made like an idol or someone made uh, an image for the false gods, things like that. So as odd as it sounds, you know, I've talked about you being made in the image of God, which is to say like you image God to the world. When people look at you, they should see, uh, a little bit of what God looks like, not physically, but in love and in God's characteristics and how he would take care of the planet how he would subdue the earth, how the choices that he would make. Uh, When people look at us, because we're made in the image of God, they should see God. And I know what I'm about to say sounds weird, but if that word image is the same kind of idea that people make images of false gods or people make idols of false gods, then maybe just put in terms that we think of more often, like you are in a weird way an idol to god now that is not to say that you are supposed to, that you are worshiped i'm not saying that it's not to say that you are god i'm not saying that what i'm saying though is if someone were to look at an idol of uh, some kind of false god when they look at that idol they would think that they are looking at some kind of representation of that false god in the same way as a human being when people look at you, they should be thinking, ah, a representation of Yahweh, a representation of God right there in that human being. And every human being has this. It doesn't matter if they're evil or good. It doesn't matter if they're Christian or not. By the nature of being a human being, you are the image of God, an idol of God, if you understand the way in which I'm using that. So God's logic here, why should you not kill anyone ever? Outside of the moral implications of it, part of the reason that you should never kill a person is because that is the image of God. You're killing the image of God. That That's his. He made that. That's a representation of him. And that should start to make us look at all life as sacred, whether it's someone doing incredible evil or someone doing incredible good, whether it's uh, a baby who's about to be aborted, that is the image of God right there, inherently made in the image of God, or whether it's an old person that we're trying to send off to uh A home somewhere and not get our hands into taking care of our family. Like that right there, that's the image of God. And if we had this view of people more often, just imagine how much different the world would be. It seems like God has that view, right? I mean, He waits as long as He can before He wipes out evil. And we talked about this in our Revelation class last night, actually. You know, it seems like it seems like God waits for evil to come to its most desperate state where there's nothing left that you can do to change things. And I use the analogy of global warming. I, re- I remember a few years back, there was an article saying like, hey, there's a line on the global warming conversation. When we cross that line and we've let all this stuff into the atmosphere, we cannot uncross that line. From a scientific perspective, we cannot go back. Back under that line, the damage done there will have been permanent. Now we could keep combating it and bring it down, but we'll, we won't be able to go back under that line. Now I use that as an analogy when I'm talking about uh, when I'm talking about uh, uh, this idea of evil. It's as though God has His own line; like He sees all things, He knows all things, and as long as there's hope. Even like the hope of Sodom and Gomorrah, if I can just find five righteous people there, it'll be worth it. Things could change. Uh, The the same idea, like the world has to fall into this desperate state of evil where Revelation shows like no one's repenting. No one's coming back at this point. Uh, Everyone's hardened their hearts. In fact, they've joined the leagues of Satan and they're going to try to attack God. Like that's how desperate things have to be. For God to to uh, bring about what uh, might appear like the next biggest story since the flood, and that's part of the reason in the New Testament that you do see the flood come up as a conversation about uh, um, the end times, like it becomes an analogy. Uh, just as there was this flood in the Old Testament, so down the road there will be another moment of that kind of judgment at that kind of level, that kind of greatness. So, with all that being said, um, God, God will wait. You know, if if He sees hope, He will wait. And there is always hope. This was how I got into all that. There's always hope because humanity is made in God's image and it takes a lot to completely and totally squander that because by our inherent lives as human beings we are all made in the image of God and he knows how strong that is there's always a chance so know that when you kill another person when you live as though another person's life doesn't matter if you carry a gun on yourself and because you you would be okay with just taking out anyone who might be a threat that's not the picture that the bible's painting right here it's reminding us all people good or evil we're all made in god's god's image uh and even animals if they sin on that 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 will be uh um reckoned back back to them even animals whom we think like can't you know decipher that killing a human being would be wrong, they don't have that kind of knowledge, we would think even they have to uh, live up to the consequences of that sin, which in their case is is death. That being said, Jesus is eventually going to come along and say, hey, look, uh, no more of this like um, killing to get back at each other or anything like that. Now I'm just telling you, uh, you know, I'm going to show you what it's like to live out the image of God, and living out the image of God means dying for those who hate you, dying for those who kill you, forgiving those who murder you. Uh, This is the fullness of the truth of what it means to be the image of God. Uh, you, You don't pay back. Vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is his thing to take on, so just leave that up to him. Uh, and that is what you see throughout the book of Revelation. Despite all the violence that you see in Revelation, um, any like vengeance that comes, it comes through God. And uh, humans, time and time again, in Revelation, Christians—sorry, Christians—time and time again, all throughout Revelation, are seen as martyrs. And it's like pivotal points throughout Revelation. Whenever we zoom in on the Christians, what are they doing? They're portraying what Jesus did on the cross, they're getting themselves killed in order to show the self-sacrificial love of Christ to these people around them. And that is the one thing in Revelation that actually makes people repent. The plagues doesn't make people repent, but these Christians who, who, keep, re, uh, who keep offering their lives lovingly for these others, um, that, that becomes a moment of repentance. All right. Uh, backtrack one more time here. Uh, again, God is saying like, I've made man in my image. Therefore you don't kill my image. I don't know if this is the verse that Paul has in mind when he says what he says in first Corinthians three, uh, 16, but it's the same general premise. So like Christians are like this, even like more, uh, intense version of the image of God, you know, like we're all made in God's image, but Christians are a new creation, uh, uh, the new resurrected body. They're, they're a glimpse of what God has to come. So, like, this is like a, a, a new level of, of what a human being could look like as the image of God. But on top of that, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We are temples where God dwells. And after Paul's talked about us being temples, he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He goes on, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That right there, is kind of like what was stated in, uh, in, in our story here in Noah with Genesis kind of reiterated from a new Christian perspective. Um, this idea that like we're made in God's image, God's sacred presence is in us. And therefore like it's dangerous to take out violence on other human beings. There are plenty of books that, uh, uh we could read to get into that, uh, in my book, A Taste of Jesus, I have a hundred page chapter on peace and, uh, a lot of, that was one of the topics I was greatly inspired on, uh, throughout the last few years. And that's maybe why I just got so passionate and way off, way off track here. We're talking about Noah. How'd we end up in revelation and martyrdom and and all this stuff? Okay. Uh, We're going to wrap this up. I only want to hit on one more thing, but let's read to that point. Uh, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Uh, it's that word bow I want to zoom in on right there. You know, we it seems fairly obvious that this is probably a rainbow. Another possibility could be uh, the firmament uh, because ancient people believed that there was this dome-like structure over the earth and that uh, the waters were above that dome-like structure, which uh, you'll see in the creation story. And if we would have read throughout all of the flood, we would have saw it there. Where the windows in the firmament are opened and the waters start pouring out into the earth through that. So they had this dome like structure in mind in ancient culture because they didn't understand the earth was a globe, a planet spinning around in circles. They thought it was flat earth, you know? So uh, that being said, the bow, is, since it's in a cloud, probably a rainbow, uh, but it could also be a reference to the firmament. Uh, but uh, there's also just a possibility that this is referencing some kind of ancient Hebrew thinking that maybe we don't have around anymore. And what I mean by that is when we look at uh, other ancient religions, like the false gods are often pictured with bow and arrows. Uh, you you have even a psalm, I think it's Psalm 91, talks about Reshef and his arrows that fly by day. Uh, the idea is like this demon or this false god it comes in with his bow and arrows. Uh, you've got other ancient stories from Mesopotamia where the gods carry weapons. And we don't have the word rainbow here. We have just bow. God set his bow in the sky. So there's a possibility that that bow in the sky, you know, like God has just won his victory, uh, he's taking up his weapon of the flood. And uh, now that weapon, when it's up there in the sky, that will be a reminder to him that he he won't flood the earth again. So uh, there's just a possibility that maybe there's this more ancient story about Yahweh and his bow and arrow uh, that maybe there's reference there that we just don't know. Who knows? Uh, but the idea would line up with how um, other spiritual entities were often pictured with with weapons. So, with that being said, that is uh, kind of the restart to um, to creation. It's been flooded. It's been redone, and Edenic values are repeating themselves. And unfortunately, evil's gonna get the best of us, and we are gonna be messed up in no time before we even leave Noah's family, and that. It's a very, very strange story that, uh, I think can be made sense of, um, but most of what people have heard on that story is exactly the way it's written, which, uh, is not very helpful. There's definitely something more going on. If you know what story I'm talking about, we'll get into that next week. If you don't know what story I'm talking about, feel free to read ahead into, uh, Um, Noah's Interesting Story in His Tent.